Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Dave McCune, the self-evolved leader, has joined us, and it's such a great pleasure to connect with you. I'm so excited because I have to say, I haven't, I haven't read the book, but the chapter titles, the section headings are extremely thoughtful and crisp and, and, and high impact. And so that must mean it's a fantastic book. And uh, boy, it's such an interesting concept. So I'm just going to let you uh, take it away. But I think first we got to find out where you're based and how you got there, because that story is pretty awesome too. <laughs> Sure, happy to agree to be with you, Brad. And wouldn't it be funny if I just peeked out at chapter headings? You know, that was the that was my best writing, and the rest of it was <laughs> everything, was, everything was garbage in between. Yeah, no. just there's no way that's possible. That's what's so cool about it. So I'm originally from Northern Ireland. I'm from from Belfast, up in up in the north, and um, I, I've been in the United States since about 2013. Moved to Massachusetts first of all. Um, actually to join the family business, survived one New England winter, realized that I couldn't deal with um, snowstorms and shoveling myself out. Uh, And uh, after about a year or 18 months, I had uh, met a beautiful, lovely girl called Paris, who's now my wife. And we were working virtually at the time. So decided, hey, we could could live anywhere doing what we're doing. And so we decided to make uh, a little trek over to the West Coast. And we now are settled in Laguna Beach in Orange County. Okay, so you blokes listening in in Northern Ireland right now, whatever the weather is, whatever the situation is, this guy flew over to America, grabbed an American girl in in short order in Massachusetts, and then landed in in the the promised land of Laguna Beach, I think memorialized on on reality TV shows and everything else. But it is a a cool spot down there in Orange County. You, You can't beat it. You definitely cannot. The the weather's great. The the way of life is nice, and you know we're very blessed to be here. So your book, which we're going to be the centerpiece of our discussion, but I also want to know how this plays into your uh, your day to day business. The self evolved leader elevate your focus and develop your people in a world that refuses to slow down. Ha! Ah, that is <laughs> that is uh, damn straight. The world's refusing to slow down. I feel like we've lost a lot, and so many changes are. Um, you know, forcing me to reflect on the the half of my life that wasn't hyper connected, right? And so I was in workplaces where we didn't have this technology and the the chat window open all the time and distracting you from your your peak task. But of course, there's no turning back. So I'd love to hear about some uh, reflections and solutions uh, honoring your book and and the work that you do. Sure, happy to. So um, in conjunction with my geographical shift across the the world, um, I also began to carve out a career working with leaders, mostly at um, the senior level of an organization, to help them set and achieve their strategic growth goals. And one of the things that I realized over the last 10 years or so is just the speed with which the world is moving so quickly. And the impact that that is having on our leaders in our organizations, uh, ultimately, we're living in a world where we've given everybody and anybody the um, privilege, the right to interrupt us at any time using any medium that they want (laughs) and assign whatever level of priority they want to that interruption. And it's causing our leaders to 
ultimately um, lead in a way that is becoming less helpful. Uh, and that is essentially turning up and leading through acts of heroism. So because things are moving so quickly and we have to respond to whatever's latest or loudest, whatever client has an emergency, whoever on our team has is, is got a challenge or an obstacle, our leaders are just telling our people what to do or we're still jumping in and doing that themselves. They're, they're saving the day in these small, uh, minor ways. But that has a, a, an impact on their team because over time, if my boss is just constantly saving the day for me, eventually I'm just going to stop trying to think for myself. I'm just going to come and say, hey, Brad, here's an issue. What do you want me to do about it? And so our people in our organizations are developing this sense of learned helplessness, over-dependence in our leader, and, and it's causing a, a level of frustration amongst them, lower morale, and our leaders end up end up being overworked, being the bottleneck, because they're constantly needing to save the day. And at some point, they're looking at their team saying, gosh, what happened to you guys? You used to be so self-sufficient, to which my only response is, well, you've got to look in the mirror because you're at least half of the problem. Learned helplessness. Did you make that up? I didn't, know. It's brutal, uh, man. It's brutal. It, is, it actually came from a series of experiments in the 70s, um, and it was all about human response to, to negative stimulus. And um, in this study, the researchers split uh, groups up, and in one room... Uh, in both rooms, they played just a really terrible, awful noise. And in both rooms, there was a switch. In one of the rooms, the switch didn't work. And so eventually, the people in that room just give give up trying to switch off the noise. What they did later on in the day then was put that same group of people in another room with a different switch and the same noise. And very few of the people even attempted to to try to make the new switch switch off the noise, even though in this instance it worked. And so that was where they developed the sense of learned helplessness. And it's been used in, in, in all different uh, ranges of disciplines. Oh, I love those experiments that you read about. I want to be uh, a subject one time where they, they mess with my head and, and then everyone can ridicule me for the rest of my life. All the researchers that look at these, these idiots that didn't even try the switch. Right. Um, I can't wait to be elected one day. Because we all, we all believe that we wouldn't be the one, right? Exactly. Like, I'm yeah. so much more like, intelligent. Wait, are you one. kidding? Of course I would go try the switch <laughs> at least once. Yeah, I'd be the leader in the room saying, hey, we should go try the switch, shouldn't we? Uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. So how did you get into this? You said you went to do the family business in Massachusetts um, and, and all of a sudden you're um, uh, doing this uh, leadership training. Yeah, so my father started a, a company about 25 years ago um, called Predictable Success. Uh, he was a solo consultant. He worked with senior leadership teams to help them scale their business. And I joined him in 2013 with the explicit purpose of uh, helping to grow that business. Uh, we worked together for about four years, grew it to about 10 uh, people. And then he and I parted ways and I uh, set out on my own, um, set out my own outfit called Outfield Leadership, where I continued a lot of the same type of work that I was doing. Um, and it also gave me the opportunity to write the book um, and uh, spend more time working with leaders at, at all levels of an organization. Uh, so these days we have a lot of remote things happening due to the the circumstances. Uh, but I guess prior to that and now, have things changed? Do you, do you do a lot of remote consultation anyway? 
Yeah, I, I before the pandemic, I was on a on an airplane probably three out of every four weeks in the month. Um, uh, even though I'm based in California, I had quite a lot of clients on the East Coast in New York and Grand Rapids, and uh, would do a lot of work with teams in person. Um, about twenty five percent of what I did was virtual and um, delivering online. Uh, training and consultations to back up the in-person stuff. The last six months, that's definitely uh, switched. I've been on an airplane since I think the end of February of this of this year, and that's caused everybody to have to adapt and get used to what that means. Um, not just for me and how I work with my clients, but also um, my clients and how they serve their end customers. Um, and so it's been an interesting um, couple of months. And I think what will be most interesting will be to see to what level do we return to mm. to the way things were before um, or to what level have we learned that there is an element and a degree of what we can do that we used to think had to happen in person that we can't do remotely and doesn't require bringing groups of people together into into a room. So we'll, we'll see how that all plays out. Wow. I mean, what is your opinion of all that? Because it, it seems like there's so many advantages to... Uh, remote working, maybe the the workers feeling like they're living a more balanced lifestyle, especially with the ridiculousness of the morning commute. I can't understand why we can't figure that one out years ago where people can start at a staggered basis. But uh, as we see this future unfolding, especially in the realm of leadership, where that interpersonal connection in the, in the conference room and whatever the dynamic is where you're actually interfacing with people, um, can we can we make this work with a little uh, a little more remote work? What's the what's the perfect balance? Yeah, and there's going to be um, perspectives on the extreme ends of that spectrum. You know, some people can say we can do everything remotely and let's never ever get into a room together. And some people will say no, we, you know, you, you're going to lose the human touch, and we need to make sure that we have that. And the answer, as it almost always is, is somewhere uh, nicely in the middle. Um, I think we'll we'll definitely see more of a hybrid approach. You know, a lot of the big corporations aren't renewing their their leases in their um, uh, office buildings. Um, I think that that'll probably be where the biggest divide will be. I think the larger corporations will figure out a way to deal with it um, and and have more of a focus and a push on remote or certainly hybrid. And I think the smaller organizations won't. Um, And there's a bunch of reasons that go into that. One of them is, I mean, and the big driving one is just cost. You know, there are a lot of larger organizations now realizing just some massive cost savings from having people work from home and not having to have that office space and not having to... um, uh, get people together in in rooms, um, so we'll probably see a divide amongst large organizations and smaller organizations. Uh, what I hope maintains out the back of this is not necessarily the way in which we get together to work, but more so that there has been a movement more towards compassion and empathy and seeing the human side of people that we work with because it's been such a challenging year in so many different ways. Um, and I hope that maintains pace um, because I think we needed a little bit of a shot in the arm of humanity in our organizations. And that would be it would be nice to see that continue. I think you may be referring to the dog barking or the kid screaming in the background and, you know, previously we'd be all offended if everything wasn't perfect. Right. And now it's like, oh, what kind of dog is that? You know, like whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and that's opened up to just, yeah, it is. And a lot of, you know, um, 
politicking than turning up with your you know, your professional voice and your, the way that, you know, <laughs> like the more that people in organizations can talk the way that you and I talk, I, are talking right now, I think the better. And just being able to turn up and say, I'm actually having a bit of a cruddy day and people being, you know, that's okay. We all have cruddy days, not needing to have your best face on at, at all times. Right. Or, you know, getting uh, interrupted by real life happenings that right. we should all respect and prioritize. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and just giving people the freedom in the room. You know, if you need to take your dog to the vet or, you know, go to a doctor's appointment for whatever reason, then that's great. You don't need to be tied to your desk from, you know, eight in the morning to six at night. Yeah, I think it'd be, it's a good place to put in some incentives. Like, hey, if you get the work done, I don't care how often you show up in the office. And if you don't, maybe we're going to have to put you on a shorter leash and, and install some of that old school uh, regimentation. Yeah, output-driven leadership, I think, is is going to come into the fore a lot more in the next couple of years. And I think that's a positive thing. As long as the work gets done, it's to the quality that needs to get done. Your relationships with the people that you work with and your clients are, are of a high enough standard. If you can get that done in an hour a day, awesome. If it if you need eight hours a day to get to that quality, then that, you know that's, that's, that's okay too. How about if you can get it done in an hour and make it look like eight hours? That would well, be, I mean, that that's, would be sweet. That's, that's the key, yeah. And yeah. then everybody everybody will just need like a cardboard cutout of themselves to put on their Zoom cameras. So that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you're working, when you're talking about the senior executives, we're generally thinking of a population of really high-powered, confident, focused people that might not be uh, as receptive as the next person to constructive critical feedback, redirection, things like that. I wonder how that challenge in general goes for you when somehow you got hired, congratulations, that great. And then you're coming into a face-to-face where you're like, hey, you guys are uh, mediocre here. The first, ch- And I want to hear you talk about the first chapter, breaking the cycle of mediocrity. I don't know if that would always go over super well uh, with someone who's succeeded so much and been on such an accelerated path. It's it's certainly a balancing act, and what I've learned over the years is I have to start from a position where it's not about my ego. So I'll I'll my rule is to show up to bring my experience, what I know is what I know I'm good at, and to act more as more as a mirror to the senior leadership team and less as a, um, a megaphone shouting at them. And what that does is a couple of things. One, it it changes the the locus of control away from me having to convince you of a thing, more towards me putting up um, a framework and a structure to help you as a team and as individuals recognize some of your own flaws, and then to decide what you want to do about that. And and in every instance, yeah, there'll be some folks that are like, absolutely, I can see the need to change here. Let's make that happen. You'll have a number of folks in the middle that go, eh, I mean, I can sort of see it, but is it really that big of a deal? And then you'll have a um, another group of people, often one or two individuals that just refuse flat out to, um, to even recognize that there's an issue. It's not my job to make them see that. In, in fact, what it is, is it's the, the culture of the team and it's the team's job 
to move in the direction that they that they want to. And there's nothing morally or ethically good or, or bad about what we're talking about. We're talking about running a business, and so long as we're not actually talking about moral and ethical reasons, the the, the shifts in in leadership style and strategy development. If they choose not to go into that in that direction, that's that's awesome. Like that's their choice, and they want to do that. That that's fine. I'll maybe not be back again, and and that's uh-huh. okay. Um, so I think you have to wear it not to. You know, I've seen other facilitators and other consultants where the output of where the team um, is going is so tied to their own ego that they fight it and fight it and fight it, and and you have to see it, and I have to be right. I don't have to be right about anything, and that's why I think it ends up working in in the long run. So you're probably disarming right away, because uh, who knows what they're they're braced for when you when you first connect with them. Right, they're they're a little tense or whatever whatever's going on, and then um, you you take them down the road of uh, reflection and looking in the mirror. I like that. Absolutely, and you know, a degree of self-deprecation can always go a long way. And also, I mean, quite frankly, an Irish accent is just is quite helpful because people are they're interested. They're just in. They want to hear what you say. It's it's an advantage that I have that you know. You know, I'll, I'll play up to if I need to. <laughs> it's a huge advantage. Ask Paris. I mean, here, here comes some guy, and uh, all of a sudden uh, they're married and uh, on the shores of Laguna Beach. You can't beat that. I know. The funny thing was, whenever I first met Paris and we started talking, you know, she said, "Oh, all of the people around me, all my friends, are like, oh, he's from Ireland. That's awesome. Like, has he got an Irish accent?" She's like, "I really don't. It doesn't. Bo- it really doesn't bother me. I don't. You know, I'm not. A, I'm not attracted to the Irish accent. It is what it is. Whatever." So. <laughs> Oh, they're they're so proud of their own Boston accent. Oh, that's on. very true. That that's is very true. The accent of all accents, yeah. Um, so, do you see some recurring themes, uh, especially when it comes to mediocrity or dysfunction, that are I guess we could uh, blame on uh, society as a whole or the advancement of technology at an accelerated rate, and that the thing that you really have to uh, put out the first fire when you're when you're going to these organizations. Absolutely. You know, what happens in our organizations is a is a microcosm of cultural shifts in, in general. Um, and the cycle of mediocrity that you've alluded to is is no more than the output of what we talked about earlier, which is if I'm leading through heroics, my team develop learned helplessness, they get disempowered, and I get frustrated because I'm the bottleneck. And what that ends up doing uh, for us is it's not that we're not delivering okay work you know it's not that we're delivering terrible work sometimes we're even doing pretty good and occasionally even great stuff but it's not over the long run it's not sustainable and it's exhausting so it's Mm. it's this level of mediocrity and and cultural shifts have have weighed into that absolutely in a huge way um culturally and technologically obviously just with the advancements of technology it just opens that gateway uh, that number of avenues through which i can be interrupted Uh, it has created this illusion that everything is urgent uh, and created this um false belief that uh action is the greatest thing uh, that coupled with, you know, this notion of the hustle culture, where mm-hmm. as long as you're moving in a direction, that's the be- that's the best thing. I, I don't ex- ascribe to that. Hard work is important, absolutely. But if you don't have the intention around it, you're just kicking up a dust cloud of activity. I, w- I would rather, and I work with teams, to encourage them to slow down a little bit 
not to get slow or to, you know, get mired in bureaucracy, but to slow down a little bit in order to be a little bit more intentional about the decisions that you're making so that when you move to action, there's much more likelihood that people are aligned around the direction that you're going in. They feel inspired and empowered in their role in it. And you're much more likely to actually achieve the outcome that you want instead of just moving in a direction and then someone, a new bit of information coming in and then you having to shift and then shift and then shift and then Mm. shift. That's not leadership. That's just throwing stuff at a a wall and hoping to see what sticks. Um, And all of that's influenced by culture and technology around us. Yeah, I think we're missing that solo reflective time where you're sitting on a bench at lunch rather than working with your mobile device uh, on personal matters or social media or entertaining yourself. And then I also think we're missing that uh, sort of casual time. And this might be a plug for in-person, you know, interconnectivity where there's actually an office situation. Because I can recall a lot of times in my career when I was in in, in a work environment, um, the casual conversations where you're just hanging out, you might be talking about last night's World Series game, and then the conversation jumps to the next thing, the next thing, and something really fantastic comes out of it because there was no tight, urgent agenda, bang, bang, bang. You know, we were just kind of free-flowing and brainstorming, yeah. and that might be uh, marginalized these days due to the, the, the pace of technology. Very, very much so, and this need for efficiency, and so we we don't we don't spend a lot of time in those moments. We don't give ourselves the headspace to be a little bit more creative, or a little bit more innovative, or even just to ask some more questions. We have a tendency to solve whatever the first presentation of a problem is in front of us, which often, if not always, is not the actual problem. And so we <laughs> But it's waste solved. A, right. But we, we high waste fives a, all around. Ex- exactly. We waste a lot of time solving problems that were not quite the problems that we wanted to solve. And you know, it's it's like I know that you you're um you enjoy golf. It's a lot like I, I'm a terrible golfer. Um but it's a lot like that notion that if you hit the ball even a millimeter off at that point of contact, it doesn't end up a millimeter away from where you want it. It ends up, you know, in the in the rough or in a bunker or in the water or in my case, three holes over. Because when we solve, when we spend time solving the wrong problems, even if it's just a nuanced version of it, we just end up miles away from where we really want to be. And just bringing back some of that intentionality, a little bit more time for individuals and groups to 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 ensure that we're working on the right things, actually will pay dividends on the implementation. You'll you'll end up implementing faster. You'll get a better result if you just take a little bit more time over over your decision making. Uh, listeners, just so you know, we know what a terrible golfer is in America. We see them at every golf course. But if you're from Northern Ireland and you say you're a terrible golfer, it's, it probably means like that you shoot 79 instead of 73 because it's the it's the land of uh, minimal population, but some of the greatest golfers of all time and a disproportionate number of the great golfers, uh, Darren Clark, Rory McIlroy. I mean, these guys crank them out in this, in this lousy weather and whatever else is against you up there. But that is the land of golf for sure. 
Yeah, I think it is the lousy weather because they, you know, they forge through and they're like, well, if I can, if I can, <laughs> if I can score under par and gale force winds, you know, I'll come to Florida where it's beautiful and nice and it's like, hey, this is way easier. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so let's say that you do have a group that's receptive to the message. Um, we're trying to reclaim our attention. That's the uh, chapter six. That's one of your um, one of your chapter titles. What are some things that you know, some practical things that you throw down and say, hey, this is the, this is the new path. What can we do on that, on that level? Yeah, so a big shift that underpins all of this, um, one of the reasons why we end up in the cycle of mediocrity is because our, our leaders believe that they have to lead through this through um, a degree of certainty. So saying that, you know, I'm out in front, I know where we're going, follow me. It's, it's, it's old and outdated ways of thinking about leadership. Uh-huh. And so in order to actually overcome this, we need to, to shift that mindset away from certainty towards actually more vulnerability, more empathy. And in order to do that, I I talk about three steps in the book. Uh, First of all, no matter what level you're at as a leader, spend a little bit of time collaborating around a shared vision with your team. Uh, Not necessarily your vision of where you want the team to go, more so what their vision is, um, um, where they want to be in three to five years' time, so that you've got this shared vision that you're working towards that everybody buys into. Um, That's part of that intentionality that we talked about. At least now we've got our North Star and know where we're going. Uh, once we do that, then just mapping out, out a series of implementation points where you can review your progress to, to that vision, uh-huh. slightly slightly less sexy part of it. You know, everybody loves creating a compelling vision because it's exciting. But then w- what are the steps to get there? You know, if our vision's our destination, how do we chart the course? So what do we need to achieve this year, this quarter, this month, heck, even this week? How do we ensure that we're on, on track to do that? How do I meet with my team on a regular basis? What do I, what do I review? What's on my dashboard? to keep us focused on that um so with our vision is our end destination um our implementation pulse is the the map to get there and, and then i talk about leaders developing five core disciplines to help chart that course because it's not enough just to um jump on a boat with a intended destination if you don't know how to actually make the boat move and you don't know how to deal with a storm coming in, you're not going to get anywhere. And so I talk about five key disciplines that leaders can develop to really help chart that course and, and get, and, and, keep their team focused on that end vision of where they want to get to, of which attention management or reclaiming your attention is one. Uh, yeah. Speaking of that vision, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, the doctor, Atul Gawande, I think his name is, he was on a podcast. He's pretty prominent, uh, with with a book out and everything, okay. and uh, he referenced research that uh, starting a, a surgical procedure, you know, with the team in the operating room, maybe there's three or four or five people, um, merely conversing about what the goal of the surgery was and encouraging everyone to uh, to you know communicate mm-hmm. uh, led to this dramatic decrease in. Uh, complications, deaths of the patient, you know, much better surgical outcomes because it breaks free from that, uh, that dated hierarchical, hierarchical situation where the surgeon is the, the God, right? As Alec Baldwin said in that movie, right. and no one's going to talk back. And even if a piece of pair of scissors are left in the body, you know, they're too shy to, to bring up that the surgeon made a mistake. And it was an interesting, uh, 
application of these principles in the in the highest level and the highest stakes imaginable in a mm. surgical room, uh, the need to communicate just on the basic level of like what's our shared goal today had yeah. a huge impact. So it's, I love it, that one. Yeah, it's and, it's hugely important. I mean, and it just goes back to as well human nature, which you know, like you said, even at that highest level, you would just imagine that they just have a shared goal anyway. Um, but it happens at, at in any interaction of people. You can have 10 people in a room making decisions and walking out of that room with with. 10 very different interpretations of what was just decided, who's responsible for it, what success looks like, and, and what we're going to do next. And, and just taking that time, again, back to intentionality, to ensure that you've, you've looked each other in the eye before you leave and you know that you've stacked hands, that'll just increase the, the quality of the output. And, and again, in a world where everything needs to happen now, you know, people get to the end of the meeting and go, that was a great meeting, let's go. And, and everyone's like, well, what what are we doing? So just taking some time to really clarify that, and I think is hugely important. Yeah, I think being careful with your communications and word choices. And I've seen these power dynamics in place where um, someone who, who's leading the the show says, uh, "Okay, I think we're done. Any questions? Any questions from anybody?" And when you throw it out like that, it's not. They don't really mean. Do we have any questions? Can we waste more time if someone's uh, insecure, confused? And so I think uh, we gotta we gotta kind of um, you know bust out of those uh, conventions where. Uh, we're, we're saying something, but we don't really mean it, or the tone's not really supportive, or like you said, uh, vulnerable and empathetic. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I often say that great leadership just comes down to asking more and better questions, mm-hmm. and, and and that's a great example. No, when I, when anybody asks any questions, like you said, they don't they don't want your questions because and also the, the <laughs> when 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 you ask does it does anybody have any questions? There's only two responses to that: yes or no. Uh-huh. And people are going to say most people are going to say no and hope that nobody else says anything. One of the greatest things that a leader can do in that particular moment is to not ask um does anybody have any questions actually just a simple reframing what questions do you have Mm. and then and then silence and 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 then the good questions will emerge or you give it 30 seconds which will feel like six hours and then you go okay it sounds like we're aligned that's that's great let's let's move forward Um, leaders should not be asking any question that has a yes or no answer to it it just does not bode well for curiosity for inquiry for good decisions it just shuts down discussion uh, so we we call that in contrast we're going for open ended questions, sure. uh, which don't lead to a, a conclusion. So tell me about the project as opposed to how did that project go? Because if you say how did that project go, it sounds open ended, but of course that can contain a yes or no answer. When fine, we're done. Yeah. It, rather than tell me about the project, well it took twice as long as we thought. Da da da. You have complete opening to to be free with your communication. Yeah, absolutely. Another one, a great one. You know, you get to, let's say somebody comes to you, has a problem, you talk through it and you go, was that, was that helpful? They're going to say, yes. (laughs) So instead of saying that, what was most helpful of our conversation or what was most useful or what are you taking away from this? Mm. Just giving them the opportunity to, to, to think, to think through what, um, what they're really taking away from it. The other great thing about asking somebody what was most useful about that is it's already some anchoring in their head that it was useful. You're, you're already saying that they're already thinking, yeah, that was really useful. Let me just figure out what was most useful. 
instead of that was all garbage. You're confusing me. <laughs> yes. Because yeah. even no if it chance. was all even if it was all garbage and you say, well, what was most useful? You know, it, it forces them to pick to, to actually just get in there and go, okay, well, this bit was most useful, this bit was less helpful, and then that helps everybody involved in the in the conversation um grow and evolve and move forward. So you're talking about the discipline for the the five discipline uh, for the leader. Uh, you're talking about these are personal attributes that you put into place so that you can deliver uh, good leadership to your team. Do you want to mention what those five are? Sure, uh, happy to. And the reason, by the way, that I call them disciplines is because I, I just got fed up in the industry people having this ongoing argument or discussion or debate around whether leadership is a hard skill or a soft skill. People say, oh, well, leadership is a soft skill, which basically means that it's hard to train it's mm. hard to assess against. You don't really know what it means. It's sort of ephemeral. There's this feeling that you're either born with it or you're, or you're not. It's, it's just garbage. I mean, you can practice being a good leader in the same way that you can practice how to play golf or how to surf or how to cook or how to play the guitar. It's no different. It's human behavior and action. You can practice any of that. So I just said, uh, you know, let's not even have that argument. Let's, let's refer to it as a set of leadership disciplines because there's no mm. debate about that. A discipline is something that you can learn, you can train, you can master, you can get um, assessed and rewarded on. And so I've been teaching that for a number of years now. Of those five leadership disciplines that I think are most crucial and helpful in today's um, day and age, they are this. Number one, reclaiming your attention, which we spent quite a bit of time talking about. Just um, being um, a lot more present, walling off the interruptions, getting much better at dealing with interruptions into your flow and assigning a, a true level of priority rather than dropping everything all the time and just going, gosh, we've got to go attend to that. Get really good at saying, is this truly urgent or, or is it something that can wait? Once you get good at reclaiming your attention, then you want to, um, um, you want to uh, facilitate team flow. And that's all about taking the the asks of your team and ensuring that they don't all sit on your plate, ensuring that that gets spread around the team in an appropriate way. Most leaders have far too much on their own to-do list when, in fact, you should be cutting that down to about 20% of what's on that. Once you facil facilitate team flow, um, then you want to coach for high performance. So how do you ask open-ended questions that, that gives your team empowerment to, to um, complete the things that they have to do without feeling like you're micromanaging them, but knowing that you're there to support them if they need that advice, guidance, and support. Coach for high performance. Um, having symbiotic conversations. So how can I come to you and say, hey, hey, Brad, we have an issue. We have a problem here. And I want us to be able to talk about it in an adult, adult way so that you feel you feel listened to, heard, um, you feel valued as a human, but that we understand that there is something that needs to be fixed or changed and, and that you walk away feeling that you've got a choice in that matter. Uh, and then finally, um, building shared accountability in your team so that it's not my job to kind of, keep everybody in line, but actually we've built a culture within our, our team where we're excited about getting together to share our successes and to ask each other for advice and support and help whenever we're not succeeding. Um, when you do that as a leader, if you can create that culture and you don't need to be in the room to, to make that happen, then you know that you've, you've succeeded in, in your role of being a great effective leader. So those are the five disciplines. Uh, the last one seems particularly difficult and it's so easy to get disenfranchised. And I'll raise my hand in, in you know, previous uh, career positions where, um, for whatever reason, 
uh, including my personality attributes, right? That I maybe wasn't destined to be uh, uh, on a team. I was more of an individual uh, content contributor. But I remember feeling that sense of uh, being disconnected and discouraged and, you know, um, breaking away from that dream of shared accountability and all that. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to happen, for example, when you get shut down or you feel unfairly treated or unfairly compensated or whatever it is. So um, with that one being particularly difficult, uh, what do you think, what have you seen that's worked and what are some of the, some of the tips there if someone's wondering if their team is maybe a little bit uh, broken on that, on that note? So the funny thing is people want to start there because it feels like you'll get the best output. Again, it goes back to what can we do in the most efficient, effective way. So people, if they feel that their team aren't, don't feel that sense of accountability, they'll bring them together and they'll maybe create like this, you know, a rah-rah and try and make everybody feel good. And we're like, right. oh, a great team. Let's, let's create this team spirit. But the problem is if you don't have the right structures in place and, you're not, and you don't have a good vision and you don't have a good implementation rhythm, you don't have those other disciplines in place, that will last for as long as the food at the luncheon that you just invited everybody to. <laughs> um, building shared accountability is actually almost more of an output of everything else that I talk about in the book. So it starts with building a shared vision. You've got to start there, then get people bought in and excited about that. Then they've got to have faith that that implementation pulse that you've built is going to deliver on it, that they've got a way to track their and their team's progress through it. And then as a leader, you've got to ensure that you're um, reclaiming your attention, facilitating team flow, that you're coaching for high performance, that you're having symbiotic conversations in an adult-to-adult way. If you do all of that, then the last bit of shared accountability is almost just like the cherry on top. it's It's almost not quite there are some things you have to do but it's almost like it's just a direct output of the rest of it so my advice and guidance is don't try to fix that because you what you try to do to fix that won't fix the problem you got to back it all the way up and start with that shared vision oh good answer right it's it's going back to the first thing you said of putting out fires and leading by heroism and so if you feel feel the team's dragging for the previous two weeks and you go give a pep talk you feel like uh, you've, again, completed the hero's job because you've spread some compliments around the room and everybody goes back to work and feels empowered and motivated for four to seven hours until the next uh, you know, uh, symptom dysfunction appears. For sure, yeah. Next crisis hits or the next time you come in and say, hey, don't, you know, hey, I've just had a great idea. We're going to do this instead of that. And everybody just thinks, oh gosh, why are we, why are we changing priorities again? You know, it's just, it's all... <laughs> it's all part of that mindset of leading through certainty, leading through acts of heroism rather than leading through intentionality. Um, And so a lot of leaders pay lip service to wanting that shared accountability, Uh but they don't really make the behavioral shift themselves that they need to get there. Okay. Leaders, if you're listening, there you go, man, do the shift yourself and then, then start talking about shifting. Oh, I love it. Uh, You, you talk about um, uh, walling off distraction and I don't know if I'm speaking for many other people, but I feel like I'm constantly at war with, uh, you know, pursuing the highest expression of my talents, creating content, writing a book, for example, is a, is, is pretty, pretty uh, black and white. That, that's my challenge. And then I'm distracted by uh, my inbox and the fact that I am on a team and I feel like people are counting on me and waiting for timely responses. And so uh, these two warring inputs are happening every single day. Very much so. And it's, um, we have a, a draw to the short term pings 
Uh-huh. Um, research is starting to show that the endorphin rush that we get from those pings is creating a bit of an addictive um, feedback loop. To uh, say it very politely, right. said it more politely than anyone else, but goddamn right, that dopamine, yeah. that dopamine flooding the brain is uh, the real deal. Yeah, and it's distracting us from deep, good work. And um, research is also showing that if we get distracted from something that we're working on, um, you know, say you're writing a chapter of a, of a book and you get a ding and you go look at the email, it can take anywhere between 15 to 20 minutes for your brain to fully return to that that place of deep work. Um, Cal Newport has a great book on it um, where he talks about that. And so if you just imagine that throughout the day, it basically means if you're going from emergency to emergency, responding to crisis to crisis, to ping to ping, you're never settling into a place of great work. And um, that's hard to overcome. And it starts with identifying that it's an issue. It starts with um, making a mindset shift that that realizes that you're not delivering what you can or should. Uh, and then you've got to put some real you know, black and white parameters around what it is that you're going to respond to when you're going to respond to it how can you how can you manage that flow of information um it's our ego takes over in those moments um because it's much more exciting to go respond to an emergency than it is to to work on whatever deep bit of deep work that we're doing in the short term we've got to get back to rewarding ourselves for long-term endeavors and you know in the same way that um, it's going to be much nicer for me to have two cookies at lunch than it is to go for a 30 minute bike ride in the long run. It's going to pay me much bigger de- dividends to do the, to do the bike ride. And, and that's a big societal problem that we're facing right now. Oof, yeah. And, um, uh, it's, um, you know, recognizing it is definitely the first step. And I, I recognize it because I talk about it all the time on my podcast, uh, but it, it, it lingers along as a problem. And you mentioned something earlier in the show about uh, feeling exhausted with the dysfunctional teamwork or work circumstances. And I feel like when we are uh, engaging in continued distraction, let's say it only happens four times an hour, but it takes 15 minutes to come back to your focus. Oops, four times 15 is an hour. So there goes another hour. There goes the whole day. And I do reference feeling more exhausted uh, mentally at the end of a day that was filled with distraction and then returning to focus uh, on a a focus task and then back to distraction than a day where these, um, these tasks are segmented, let's say, where you're batching your email and all those great things that people suggest. Yeah, very much so. And leadership is is kind of similar. We've obviously got those distractions that we have to manage and we need to. But the other thing is in that in that older model of leading through heroics, our leaders go looking for crisis. They go looking for that endorphin rush, for that dopamine hit, because it's much, it's much more rewarding for me to go solve a client issue than it is to actually work on um, where I'm going to add the most value, which is the medium and long-term direction of my team and the development of my people. Um, much more satisfying from an ego perspective to go save the day. So one of the things that leaders have to do is stop um, looking for crises, like stop inventing them, stop looking for them, stop creating them. Um, make that there's enough of that in our day to day without you adding on to it. Stop shifting priorities needlessly. 
you know, build a mechanism through which you um, review your strategic initiatives on a quarterly and a monthly basis and using data to support your decisions, make a change and a shift in priorities. But too often somebody comes in after having a lunch meeting or a thought in the shower and says, well, we're not going to pursue that anymore. We're going to go in this direction. And it's like, well, based on what? Based on a conversation that you had or, or a hunch that you had while you were in the bathroom. And, and, and then everybody has to, you know, scurry underneath them just to make it happen. Um, so I work, I spend a lot of time with leaders just trying to help them resist that urge. Oof, very nice. Yeah, the, um, the the great book by Dr. Robert Lustig, The Hacking of the American Mind, talks about when we flood these dopamine pathways with mm. all manner of you know quick pleasure seeking uh, inputs. We're talking about uh, instant communication, text messages, uh, social media. He also references that we do this with uh, sugar, uh, drugs, porn, video games, all these kind of things. And so we're flooding the dopamine pathways to the extent that we block the serotonin pathway in the brain. And the serotonin pathway is the thing that uh, delivers uh, long-term happiness and contentment. So for example, uh, finishing a book project and sending it to the publisher with great pride, here's the 270 pages, uh, that, that promotes this, this happiness and contentment rather than this huge rush of dopamine that we get from hitting the, uh, the social media and the text messages. And so we literally not only are addicted to the dopamine, but we sort of lose that ability to, um, to, to you know, build a meaningful life and have the things that uh, are, are the most rewarding long term. And so it's, yeah, it's a big problem. You mentioned Cal Newport's book, Deep Work. Uh, which gets into this, and it'll it'll scare you straight if you can read some of the insights about how difficult it is for the brain to reconnect and refocus. So I appreciate yeah. you bringing that up for sure. And the other thing with all of that is, I think it's, there's an added meta cycle that happens, is, or maybe it's a micro cycle. I don't know, but um, when we become aware of that and we get trapped in it, then we end up beating ourselves up about it as well and and, <laughs> and and or doing this sort of you know all or nothing well i'll do this for another couple of days and then i'll switch it all off and i'll be you know i'll be fantastic about it and we've got to just give ourselves a bit bit of a break you know like yeah we 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 set these intentions to improve in these avenues in these areas of our life and yeah we should work hard to make that happen but when when it doesn't when you fall when you fail when you get knocked down to give yourself some self-care and to allow yourself permission to, to, to fail, um, learn the lessons and then, and then, and then get back on and not, not hold ourselves to such a high standard as well. Cause, cause nobody's ever going to, you know, achieve that. Oh, very well said. I appreciate you bringing that up because if you, for example, consume a lot of podcasts like I do, or, you know, read uh, personal growth uh, material and you're, you're striving and you have goals and all these things. Um, it's kind of easy today to feel like you're uh, not quite enough and have sort of a negative takeaway because some badass is telling you there's seven keys to making a million zillion dollars on the internet uh, in, in their spare time. And if you continually get bombarded with this, oh, and then go see the, the six-packs glistening uh, oiled up on, on social media while they're spending all the million zillion dollars that they made. Right. And yeah, get, being a little, a little kinder and gentler to ourselves and realize that 
um, hey, you know, we're allowed to disengage from optimal peak performance at times, as long as we're aware of it and know that maybe we're going to turn up the turn up the notch tomorrow if we're having a cruddy day, like you mentioned earlier. So, yeah, that was very good, very good uh, input there. Very, very much so. And you know, I. <laughs> I think that all of those approaches and methods and what they're striving for is, is great. And I read plenty of it myself and follow a number of folks that are clearly doing well, but we've got to, you know, you've got to wear that with, um, you got to wear that easy and never, I'm sure you've heard, you know, never, never compare your internal perception of who you are with somebody's external perception of who they are because it's just never it's just, you're just you're comparing apples with a screwdriver at that point um it's actually why <laughs> i i really enjoy reading biographies and autobiographies of um creative people musicians um actors artists because they're some of the most screwed up people out there but they create great work that really moves people and by very many accounts are successful um, but in a lot of instances, you'll they'll tell an unvarnished story. You know, I just finished uh-huh. um, Elton John's autobiography, and what a by all accounts a very successful musician in his field uh, and in, in other fields. What a mess of a person during his most successful moments. You know, he tells stories that are just filled with debauchery, and you would read that and go, "Gosh." You know, now I feel actually okay about the fact that I had two cookies at lunch. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. Um, and we've got to we've got to balance all of that. We've got to be more kind to ourselves. I feel um, we're often a lot more forgiving of other people in their life when they feel fail than we are with ourselves. So no matter what you're striving to do, you know you're trying to be a better husband, a better father, um, more productive, more successful, better looking, healthier. You know, it's okay to say, hey, that was a cruddy day and I didn't quite live up to it. It's fine. Hey, I, I appreciate that. That's a beautiful note to finish on, I think. A wonderful <laughs> conclusion after after banging us with so much great information and advice and tips and how to improve your team. And you know what? It's all right. Just do your best and take take progress every day. So I think a, a great step would be to pick up this book, The Self-Evolved Leader. We can find it anywhere, I imagine. Yep. Find it on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. Go to selfevolvedleader.com. Um, you can get a free chapter there. I'd love for you to pick up a copy. A free chapter. Nice. And how else do we connect with you? Um, I'm on most of the major social platforms at Dave McEwen. Uh, you can go to davemcewen.com and um, connect with me there. Uh, and uh, I hope to see you along the journey. Dave McEwen, people live in the SoCal lifestyle, teleported from Northern Ireland. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for a great show, Dave. Thanks, Brad. Really appreciate you having me on. Ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba. Make sure every salad is dressed for success with Primal Kitchen dressings and marinades. Versatile, flavorful, and unique, use Primal Kitchen dressings to marinate meats, dunk veggies, and add complexity to your favorite salads. With keto-certified, certified paleo, and Whole30 approved options, finding your salad soulmate is a snap. Choose from updated classics like ranch, Caesar, Italian, balsamic, honey mustard, or Greek. Or get adventurous with aromatic sesame ginger, zesty cilantro lime, creamy vegan ranch, or tangy lemon turmeric. Avocado oil-based, these dressings, vinaigrettes, and marinades are an easy, primal-approved way to upgrade any dish. So use the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT to take 20% off your purchase at checkout.